If your dad was one of the most famous pastors in America, you'd probably write books on happiness, cynicism, and unbelief too. And that's what you're going to hear from Barnabas Piper today. Welcome back to the All Things All People podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Jenkins, and you're in for a good one today. As I said, Barnabas Piper's the guest. Our conversation was awesome. It was deep. It was light. It was funny. It was serious. I think at one point he actually called like a whole group of Christians out, uh, and uh, which, as you're going to hear, uh, doesn't really surprise me about Barnabas. Uh, he's he's an awesome guy, you know, but he's got his own thing going. He's John Piper's son. The more you listen to him, the more you realize that like the least important thing about this dude is that he's John Piper's son. So you're going to love the conversation. I hope that if you are an iTunes user, that you'll go and review the show on iTunes. If you're not, go ahead and share it with your friends so that no one misses out. If you ever want to reach out to me, ask me a question for one of our uh, question and discussion episodes, or just ever want to reach out for questions for uh, booking speaking engagements, hit me up at jeremy at allthingsallpeople.org or follow me at allthings.allpeople on Instagram. All of Barnabas's information for his social and for his books that you should go buy are in the show notes. Um, but you know what? I don't want to waste any time. Let's get on with the show today and listen to the awesome conversation I was able to have with my guy, Barnabas Piper. My next guest is a speaker and author who has written books like The Pastor's Kid, What It's Like, and How to Help, The Curious Christian, How Discovering Wonder Enriches Every Part of Life, Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith, and his newest book, Hoping for Happiness, Turning Life's Most Elusive Feeling into Lasting Reality. He co-hosts another podcast called The Happy Rant, where he and his friends cheerfully discuss and, yes, sometimes rant about various topics inside and outside of Christianity. It's, it's a lot of fun. You need to make sure you check it out. Uh, his long career in Christian publishing has led him now to serve as director for community at Emanuel Nashville in Nashville, Tennessee. He is a diehard Minnesota sports fan and an alumnus of the school in my hometown, Wheaton College. It is my honor to have on the show today, Barnabas Piper. Barnabas, thanks for doing this, man. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on with you. I appreciate the invite. Well, it, it was uh, exciting to, to have you agree to do it. And for those of you who don't follow Barnabas on social media, make sure to check out his accounts uh, on, on various social medias in the show notes, but definitely check out his website, barnabaspiper.com. There you can uh, check out his blog, find out what he's up to. Uh, he's a great speaker, travels around and does uh, speaking engagements. Once we get back, of course, none of us are doing speaking engagements at the moment. You're going to say that um, seems like a long time ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but whenever we get back to it, make sure to go on there and, uh, and, and hit him up. But, uh, but you know, Bar- Barnabas, uh, biggest reason why I-, I reached out to you and, and wanted to have you on the show is, uh, you know, you have an interesting perspective. And just in that, that intro, you see like, uh, your background is one that is, is hard to, is hard to find. Um, do you feel like whenever you go into, uh, whether it be a speaking engagement or there in Nashville serving or working in publishing, uh, just given your background and everything, do you feel like everybody kind of is giving you more attention? Uh, like, let's see what, let's see what Barnabas is all about. Um, or is, or do you, you find it pretty easy to kind of mesh in with the crowd? 
Um, it, it varies. I, for the most part, it's not too hard to mesh. Um, it, for a couple of reasons. One is, so uh, for, for the listeners understanding, my dad is John Piper, if that name means anything to anybody. Right. So my book, The Pastor's Kid, was about being a pastor's kid, but also with a touch of, you know, celebrity pastor's kid. Yeah. I, that term kind of makes me queasy, but here we yeah. are. Yeah. Um, so there, in, in certain tribes, you know, certain camps, certain conferences, my last name has more cachet. But by and large, my dad's not as famous as people think he is. You know, it's sort of the, he, he has referred to himself as like a big fish in a koi pond kind of thing, where it's like a very, very large fish in a very tiny space, yeah. where outside of that space, I'm just a guy. And yeah. I, I really like that because that's where you can't, you can't ride a reputation in most places. I can't. I have to, you know, I have to live up to what I believe. I have to articulate things well. I have to, you know, be an authentic Christian. I can't sort of float in as a piper and be seen as yeah. something, I, you know, better than I am. Yeah. Oh, and, and I think you've, you've made that clear. I mean, you've, you've staked out your own path for sure. Um, most people, most authors don't write four books, but yet here we are, uh, you know, having just gone through that intro and seen that you have your own you know, career and you have your own identity. Uh, you know what you mentioned though, your dad, uh, yeah, the big fish in a koi pond. It's interesting to me. We have this culture of mega church pastors, celebrity pastors. And like you said, that should make us a little bit queasy. He he's gained a level of celebrity and it seems like he's never really leaned into it. Doesn't, doesn't act like celebrity by any means. Um, and that's always something I've really appreciated about him. Yeah, and that's that's it. That you're absolutely right, and it's set me up really well, also because he he has been so consistent for my entire life in terms of what he is about and why he does what he does, and he doesn't eschew fame in the sense of you know running and hiding. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't care about it, and he recognizes the pitfalls uh, that that come with it. anything that leads to ego. Mm-hmm. is dangerous and pride is a real dangerous thing. And so he's, he's just profoundly purpose, purpose minded. What is, what is the purpose that God has given him? And, it, and that that's been shaping for me because it's helped me see that, you know, fame or the illusion of fame just doesn't matter at all. Right. <clears throat> it brings as much negative as positive. It brings many temptations. And, and I've watched my dad, who's a much bigger deal than I am, uh, not treat himself like a big deal. He does not, he doesn't big time anybody, you know, not a waiter, not a waitress, not a homeless man, not what I mean. He's just, he's lived in the same house for 37 years. Homeless people come up and knock on the door and ask for money and, you know, he'll put them to work with yard work or mm-hmm. learn their names and just sort of normal people things, or at least normal in the neighborhood I grew up in. Yeah. And all of that has set the bar for me as, oh, that's, that's a godly, that's a godly pursuit of ministry, of manhood, of these, of adulthood. And I don't, you know, the fame thing just doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I I felt strongly getting on this call with you and and, and putting your name out there. I'm sure you probably get somewhat tired of people, you know, treating you as John Piper's son to me, you know, uh, you're, you're Barnabas Piper, you have your own you career, your own offerings, but it's interesting because I, I, I would love to talk about church ministry with you, but before we can, you know, we sort of need to talk about the fact that you did grow up in a early life as a pastor's kid, not just John Piper's kid, but Mm -hmm. a pastor's kid. And I'm a pastor and I, and I hear all these stories from other pastor's kids and I go, dear Lord, what am I doing to my kids? You know, (laughs) Uh, you you said one time I heard you say, uh, and it blew me away. You said that Christians, there's sometimes the temptation to hold the pastor's kid 
to a standard other than a life devoted to Jesus Christ. And I would extend this, of course, to our wives, mm-hmm. uh, our entire family. In your experience, why is it so especially destructive for a pastor's kid to be held to such a high standard? Yeah, it's um, the context for that is, and, and most people don't realize this, and most people in the church are well-intentioned. Yeah. They're, you know, seeking to follow Jesus. There's a, there's a general goodness in their direction as followers of Jesus. What they don't realize is that their sheer awareness of the pastor's kid raises the bar. You know, just when everybody knows who the kid is, then there's, there's a multitude of people who've kind of feel the freedom to speak into that, that child's life. You know, you can't run in the church. You're the pastor's kid. Yeah. You need to answer the question. You're a pastor's kid. So there's just a, there's the, there's a leveled up amount of pressure on any pastor's kid. So my dad is a more prominent pastor than some, but my experience was exactly the same as um, a pastor's kid in a church of 150 people in yeah. rural Virginia or whatever. Like there's the similarities are, uh, are striking. Mm-hmm. And so it's destructive because what the pressure that puts on a pastor's kid is to to either live up to the standard that is not what Jesus is calling the pastor's kid to, mm-hmm. or to rebel against the standard, which is not what Jesus is calling <laughs> the pastor's kid to. Yeah. So it, it's the pressure. It's so hard to find um, genuine, authentic, meaningful relationship with Christ when what you are being held to is be a little bit better Bible scholar, be a little bit better behaved. Mm-hmm be a little bit better example, be a little bit better leader at the age mm-hmm. of like eight, you know, right, yeah. on, on up through, on up through, yeah. you know, high school probably. But so there, there's not just the sense of what does it look like to learn how to ask for forgiveness, to make a mistake, to be on a learning curve like everybody else, to grow in sanctification, to repent, to, Uh, kind of find your spiritual gifts versus what everybody else says you ought to be doing. And it, and it it can be very skewing in terms of both faith and identity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the pastor's kids not allowed to get saved at camp. Uh, You know, either that or they have to re, you know, re up every year. Like they got to be the (laughs) first one down the aisle be like, all right, you know, yeah. did this last summer, but I'm doing it again because it's Thursday night at camp. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah. There's the infamous Thursday night at camp. Um, yeah. Well, and you said uh, this in the book, The Pastor's Kid, which I think is so interesting. If, if there's if there's a pastor listening, which I'm sure there are, that you need to read this book because we, we were really at risk of, you know, putting our kids into some horrible situations because you said a child doesn't know the call of his pastor father. All he knows is the effects it has on his life. Um, you know, we're not making this about John Piper. We're making this about Barnabas. But other than the fact that I have heard you say he was a great dad, what was one thing that was awesome about being John Piper's son? And one, what was one thing that people wouldn't realize wasn't really that great? <laughs> um, so in terms, well, we'll start with the good news, the positive. The, the, my favorite um, memories, the best experiences, the things that, that I felt kind of bonded with my dad over the most all fell outside the realm of ministry. Mm. Um, his steady and very loud presence at, uh, all of my sports, you know, sports games growing up, or at least most of them, I, I'm sure yeah. he missed some, but 
I don't remember feeling the need to take attendance. I don't remember ever looking in the stands and being disappointed because dad wasn't there. Like he just was a, he was a steady presence and a, you know, a very vocally encouraging one, occasionally very coachy. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but that carried over to, you know, he, he built into the discipline of his life, making time to play with his kids. So just a Mm -hmm. standard rhythm when I was little was he was, you know, just, pedal to the metal busy all day long. Didn't really see him like, you know, just working yeah. hard. Yeah. And then we'd have dinner as a family and he was consistently present for that. And then after dinner, sometimes it was 20 minutes. Sometimes it was an hour, kind of depending on what he had, where it was like, this is play with dad time. So I have three older brothers and um, the, the shape of this changed when we adopted my sister when I was 12, but growing up, it was just a house full of rowdy boys. Mm-hmm. And so it was like tumble out to the backyard and play soccer, play wiffle ball, play football, play basketball, make up some competition, wrestle, whatever it was yeah. just, and he, and he was just in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, teaching me to ride a bike, teaching me to fish, taking me like deep sea fishing, me and my brothers, a couple summers, just those kinds of things yeah. are the things that I look back on and, and think, that was the stuff of growing up. I loved yeah. that. I don't remember most of my dad. I don't remember any of my dad's sermons except for like <laughs> two things that made me laugh when I was in middle school or something. Sure. So, and I, I think that's telling as a, it's telling for me as a dad. Now I have a 14 and 11 year old daughters. Uh, so very different than a house full of boys, but I think yeah. the principle still applies is the stuff that they will take with them is, you know, invested presence. Mm-hmm. They, they could not care less. Mm-hmm. that I write books. I, I think they think it's kind of cool mm-hmm. and like when it crosses their minds, but it is not how they view me. Yeah. Um, they view me as like, am I at their swim meets? Am I making them laugh? Are we watching movies together? Are we just the, the fun stuff? Yeah. So I would say that's the positive side. The stuff, the, the thing that was not, the things that were not awesome. Um, and I think this is unique to being a pastor's kid. So I don't know that this is true for every family, but mm-hmm. I hated family devotion so much. Yeah. Uh, just abhorred it with, with all of my might because mm-hmm. my life was so woven into the church. Mm-hmm. So Bible yeah. lessons and Bible memory and teaching. And I was at Christian schools up and up through middle school. Uh, it just, so to have another, like we're going to take 20 minutes and read scripture this sounds, I sound so sacrilegious right now because I'm saying don't take 20 minutes to read scripture, but I hated it. It just felt, it felt like kind of being bludgeoned with the Bible, mm-hmm. um, which has set me up poorly as a parent because I, I have struggled to figure out what is a good spiritual rhythm with my kids. Yeah. Um, and, but I've heard Tim Keller say that he thinks it's wise for pastors to back off family devotions. Mm-hmm. Not other families, but pastors, yeah. because the kids are so steeped in Bible teaching that y- you, you run the risk of making the Bible uh, something less than the living and active word of God. Mm-hmm. And, and I struggled with that as I became an adult. Like I just, the Bible became a topic, not a, mm-hmm. not a lifeline. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how your dad and, and, and other pastors, I, I can relate with that for sure as a as a pastor who has children and wanting to, you know, shepherd them, but it's hard for pastors and anybody who works in church ministry to, to not make it like we do at work. 
you know, like yeah. for me to not lead family devotions, like I used to lead youth where I preach on Sundays now. And I'm sure our <laughs> yeah. kids, I'm sure our kids hate it because they go, I'm not just somebody sitting in a pew. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like for you, at least there was a lot more ministry happening in wiffle ball than there was at the kitchen table doing devotions. Yeah, I was, I, the things I remember learning from my dad didn't happen yeah. in family devotions. They happened when he, you know, tried to teach me not to be a sore loser and, you know, teaching me to work hard no matter what and always sprint to first base. And like these things mm -hmm. that, that kind of have these tangential lessons through life mm -hmm. um, that, that, are, that are much more imprinted on my mind than reading, you know, First Corinthians as a family or whatever. Mm -hmm. I will, but I will say there is an undeniable and probably immeasurable benefit to having had my life jam packed full of scripture. Mm -hmm. um, now, as somebody who's in ministry, the recall that I have of scripture is not like other normal people's. I, and, yeah. but, and I don't, and it, it feels almost like, it feels almost like magic sometimes. <laughs> um, because I don't, I don't feel like I've been a great student of the Bible. I don't feel like I'm brilliant. Uh, and yet somebody will have a, you know, we'll have a problem and verses come to mind. Why? Probably a significant part of that is the steadiness with which my parents just right. poured scripture all over me. And I thought it was just drowning me. And in reality, it was, it was really beneficial. Yeah. Well, and that idea of when you're a kid feeling drowned and then now looking back and realizing that your perspective then was accurate at the moment, but now you see the benefit um, it, it ties perfectly into this, this new book. Um, one of the themes of your latest book, Hoping for Happiness, is that you consider yourself this term that I love, a recovering cynic, <laughs> um, which I, when I read that, I thought, well, I got to ask then, what does that mean? What, what place did cynicism right. have in your life and what effect did it have on you as a Christian? Yeah, I, it, it's kind of twofold. One is just sort of a, a general cynicism, which is, you know, that, that tendency to kind of, like, it's not pessimism. Pessimism mm -hmm. is saying, this is going to go badly. Yeah. Cynicism is going, it's probably not going to go as good as you think it is. It's, you know. <laughs> like, it yeah, might but, even be more poisonous. Yeah, or like, but, but what, about, what about that one thing? You know, like, it was a good, mm -hmm. it was a good church service, but what about that one thing? It was a good meal, but like the waiter service was a little slow. And there's just sort of like a grinding negativity where you just sort of find the thing that isn't right, mm -hmm. um, which can be, it can be a useful skill if it's turned towards problem solving, you know, like if you're, if you're in charge of something, having the knack to find the stuff that's not quite the way it should be is really good, but it has to be aimed somewhere. Cynicism is just sort of like, meh. Right. Well, that, that wasn't what it should be. The other aspect of it. So that's one is just sort of the general aspect of it. But the way that that plays out like in spiritual life, relational life, even in work is that it stopped me. And I think it stops everybody who's a cynic from being a hundred percent invested in something. Hmm. If you give 85 or 90% and that last 10 or 15, you're like, yeah, it's probably not going to work out. You, you always have an excuse when things don't go well, Yeah, you know, pursuing a new job, writing a book, whatever it is, if you don't give it everything, if you don't put yourself all the way into it, you can always kind of shrug and be like, if I had given 100%, it probably would have been better. So there's sort of a holding back. And then that leads into holding back in, in honesty and vulnerability, relationally, 
Um, and I don't mean vulnerability in sort of the buzzy way, but like the Christian honesty way where you yeah. have to kind of open your life up to have genuine, healthy relationships with others that Christ can speak into. Um, and so, yeah, the, the cynicism is it, it lowers the ceiling on potential happiness. Because mm-hmm. if you always think it's probably not going to be that great, it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Like you just, it will be as good as you allow it to be. And you have just dropped the ceiling significantly. Mm-hmm. Now, optimism can be very foolish. Yes. The right. optimist says it's, all, it's always getting better. They're the ones who are, just can't wait for 2021 because it's going to be so much better than 2020. Based on what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like COVID's going to go away on January Yeah, 1st. I mean, the, the, the next president, whoever that person may be, is going to fix America. You know, we're not going to, COVID's going to be gone and everybody's going to be nice on Twitter or something. I don't know. <laughs> so I, I think optimism often is, you know, pessimism is everything is going to go wrong. The world's going to mm-hmm. end in 2021. Optimism is we're always trending upwards. Life mm-hmm. is like the stock market. It has its blips, but it's always trending upwards. Cynicism is kind of flatlining where you're just sort of like, hey, maybe it'll be, I mean, there's, it could be better, but like it, there's a lot of reasons to think it won't. So there's a, but there's a biblical realism and that's kind of what I tried to find in the yeah. book that says there are massive reasons for hope. Mm-hmm. There are also massive reasons to think life might not get that much better <laughs> circumstantially. Yeah. And those two things exist in tension. So what do we do? Yeah. And that's like, that's, that's the Christian existence is, so it's not cynicism. Mm-hmm. It's not pessimism. It's not foolish optimism. There's something where you acknowledge the very crappy yes. and the very hopeful and say, okay, well, how do we live in light of these two things? Yeah. And I think the, the beautiful thing about what you just said, and then what you say in the book is I think that that's really a message that these, the, I say the next generation, I mean, sometimes I, I'm sure you're like me, I, I realize I'm not that young anymore, but uh, this younger generation coming up, I think they, I think they struggle with cynicism to a great degree. Um, they're not always pessimistic. They're not always lazy. I just think that they, they look at the world and say, I, I don't think that there's really much that can be done with this, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, and, and you said something in uh, the book, help my own belief, which is I'm a questioner. I'm sure you're a questioner too. And when I read this, it blew my mind. You said questions are the conversational currency of a child, talking about children specifically. Every Mm -hmm. question is asked to learn out of a desire to understand from a stance of trust. Children ask not to challenge, but in order to believe. That's a big part of what, quote, faith like a child means. When we're talking about cynicism, we're talking about raising our children, when we're talking about the next generation, does raising the next generations of the church to be question askers like you describe in that quote, keep them from becoming cynics and critics in your mind? It can. Um, now, the, the danger is that we have had a generation prior, so probably yours and my generation, the, the Gen Xers, the millennial generation. So this is going to date me a little bit, but like when I was in college, the emergent church was the hotness. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that kind of disappeared. But out of that came... A, a tendency in Christianity for a certain generation, we'll call it generational, to ask questions without the intention of landing on an answer. Mm-hmm. So it's not skepticism. Skepticism is asking questions and kind of like struggling to, to uh, believe the answer. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure about that. There's just sort of a, a perpetual 
refusal to, to abide by the answer. You always need one more, one more question, one more answer. For, for our generation, it's more like lazy question asking where it's like, mm. we're just, we're having a, we're having a dialogue. Like, yeah. That's not how Christianity works. We should dialogue with the intent of arriving at some conclusion of truth. So we've sort of eschewed truth. Mm-hmm. So for the next generation, we have to find, again, that tension of questions are inevitable and necessary. They are a thing that, that draw us further into faith, further into knowledge of the Lord, closer in relationship with one another. Also, the Bible is just riddled with texts that raise questions. The Bible yeah. raises more questions than it answers, frankly. It just answers all the right ones. Mm-hmm. It answers all the important ones. And so we also need to keep that in mind that we, we have to be people of conviction. So the mistake past generations made was conviction with no questions. Our generation has questions with no convictions. I would like to raise my kids to ask questions from a place of conviction or with an eye toward conviction. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't know how to do that very well, but that's, that's the aim. Right. Well, and yeah, I think we're all trying our best to figure it out. Um, I, I mean, I suppose to a certain degree, it's, I know with, I have a seven-year-old daughter um, who she, she's, she's really smart. And so she asks uh, us questions all the time. And my wife, mm-hmm. my wife goes crazy because my wife, <laughs> my, my wife grew up in the church. She, she, I, I didn't. Um, and so I, I love the questions. I say, this is great. This is great. And you know, something you said in that quote is this is what Jesus is talking about when he says faith yeah. like a child is, you know, so uh, how can we, whether, it, whether it be with a, you know, full grown adults there in Nashville in a, in a small group um, in a youth group or with our children, how can we create environments? I suppose I yeah. should ask you asking where there's that, Hey, ask questions with an eye towards conviction. How can we, I don't know, set people up for that. Yeah. I that's, and that's really important because the, the, the easiest, the easiest mistakes to make, like you're going to fall off the horse one way or the other yeah. is really quick defined answers that don't get to the heart of the question. You know, if somebody, mm-hmm. if somebody is struggling with how can a good God allow bad things to happen, right. a quick systematic theological answer probably has a truthful framework in it and probably did not at all help that yeah. person. Right. Uh, like they're, they're wrestling with a pain. Yeah. They're hurt. Um, the other is to just let questions linger without any definitive truth being spoken into it. And when I say definitive, I mean like the things that, that the Bible states pretty explicitly. Mm-hmm. So the framework that I try to keep in my mind, both for myself as I wrestle with things, and then how do I share this with my kids or in teaching or answering questions at church is where I got the title of the book, Help My Unbelief, was from Mark 9.24. It's where a father's brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus. Nobody has been able to help his son. The disciples couldn't cast this demon out. And uh, he says, you know, Jesus, if you can help me, would you? And Jesus' response is, if I can, anything is possible for the one who believes. And he sort of scoffs, is like, if, like, do you know who I am? Yeah. And, uh, and the father's response is, I believe, help my unbelief. So in one sentence, he, he nails this tension. There is something that he believes with conviction that brought him to the feet of Jesus. And there is a distinct expression of doubt question, lack of surety, but he has handled it exactly right. Cause where mm-hmm. is he? He's talking to the son of God about a need. Right. So 
in, in that model, I think that answers, I think that creates a framework. So when there's a profound question, what are the things about which we can say, I believe? I believe these things about the character of God because God said them in his word. I believe these things about the promises of God. I believe these things about the future. I believe these things about, you know, morals because God has said them. Mm -hmm. Help my unbelief is the open-ended and there are things we don't know. So we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit through the word of God to, to help us see, to help us understand, to grow us, or to give us patience and faith to say, maybe I won't understand that, but because I have this anchor of, I believe I'll mm-hmm. be good to go. Like I can, yeah. I can, I can continue on and have confidence. I think the other, the other verse that's really helpful to consider in all of this is Hebrews 11, 1, where it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Mm-hmm which is a, a contradiction in itself. Right. It sounds like it logically because you have assurance of things that you hope for. So there's assurance of things you're not sure about and conviction of things that you can't see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that, again, you have this, I believe, help my unbelief model where the conviction and the assurance are based in the things we know of God. Right. The, hoped for and not seen are the things about which we pray help my unbelief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, that's an amazing uh, kind of exposition, it, you know, and just helping people see that where I've seen this from you the best or heard it, I should say, is this happy rat podcast. And it's going to seem kind of funny <laughs> because if it, it's, it's somebody who's listening, uh, once you're done with this podcast, of course, go listen to an episode of the happy rat. Uh, the, the most recent one, that I listened to, you guys were talking about uh, the Enneagram. I think maybe Harry Potter was in that one. And so you're talking about these, <laughs> the, you're talking about these um, kind of off the wall, like things that Christians typically aren't going to talk about on a podcast. And so what I hear from you and the guys on that show is sort of, it's almost like, if you don't mind me saying, it's, it's almost like modeling and showing. I'm sure that's not the intention. What it looks like to talk about things that are easy to be cynical about, but talk about them joyfully, talk about them critically sometimes. I mean, I've heard you guys criticize things and, and, and ideas on that, but it's, it's sort of this way of, of living out this recovering cynic life. Uh, you know, how, how, does, how does Happy Rant and the conversations you guys have on there uh, fit into this, this recovering cynic life that you're leading? That's a, yeah, I haven't, I haven't had anybody ask about it in that context. So it's kind of reframing uh, for me. We, our main goal on that podcast is to have fun. Yeah, um, I can tell. But, but all three of us, so Ted Clark, Ronnie Martin, and myself, all of us have leadership responsibilities in Christian ministry context. Ted is a Christian, a professor at a Christian college. Ronnie's a pastor. I work at a church. All of us have, have authored things. So there's that aspect, but then there's also just, we, we have all kind of been on very disparate, but similar trajectories in the sense of, we want to be whole people, you know, live a full life, you know, life that, you know, God has filled up the world with the Harry Potter brilliant stories and, you know, great food, great drink, great friends. And so being like this stiltified stodgy Christian certainly doesn't seem like that's not maturity. That's just, uh, yeah. that's its own version of immaturity. Uh, but neither is sort of being unserious. Mm-hmm. So finding that place where it's like, yeah, we can be absolute clowns mm-hmm. 
and be absolutely serious in the space of about 15 seconds. Yeah. Um, that seems, that seems like it's on the trajectory of living in this, this kind of like, I'm not going to be cynical about the crappy stuff in the world. I am going to find enjoyment and happiness, but there's also stuff that needs to be called not great. It needs to be called out. It needs to be called a lie. It needs to be called stupid, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And and I think anybody who has struggled with the podcast who listens to it, like we get some negative feedback here and there, sure. um, is our people who reside on one side or the other. You guys are mm-hmm. so cynical. No, we're just not positive about everything. Yeah. We don't always say nice things about stuff that we think is stupid or yeah. heinous or something. Mm-hmm. But, and then there's some people who think we're silly. It's just trite yeah. and silly. Well, no, we just have fun. Yeah. So if, if, and I think it is an expression for me now that you, you know, the, the way that you put it, like, how does it fit with the, the life of a recovering cynic? It is an expression of kind of navigating that where I, I don't want to be a perpetual cynic who's always like mm-hmm. grumbling and pointing out the flaws and things, which is my bent. <laughs> I can't be a trite, silly person who only thinks about, you know, the fluff. So right. this, this kind of pulls in both. Yeah. Yeah. It lives between the two, I guess. Yeah. And I, I mean, I do think you guys do a great job. Like I said, I was listening to one and you guys started in on Harry Potter. My first knee jerk reaction was like, oh God, they're not supposed to talk about Harry Potter. You know, um, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's the books that Christians, especially uh, Christians our age read, but then never talked about at church, you know, cause it was yeah. uh, sorcery and witchcraft. Um, but yeah, you guys do a great job navigating that. My, but, my kids read those on the way to church. Like, it's like <laughs> a 30 minute drive to church and my 11 year old, she's in, I don't know, book six right now as we yeah. record this. And yeah, she gets in the car and there's always yeah. time to kill a church. Cause when yeah. you're, when you're the child of the person who works at the church, there's a lot of downtime for you. Absolutely. So she just goes into my office yeah. And sits down and she's yeah. working working through book six well and allowing christians specifically our kids uh to to navigate those types of things to me i was a youth pastor for a long time it, it allows us to get getting back to giving them things to ask questions about mm-hmm. you know so helping them understand hey not everything in harry potter you need to hold on to you, you know yeah. i mean there's things in these writer you know in enneagram quiz and things like that like yeah take the good and the bad, you know, um, and, and learn to discern. If we shelter our kids or shelter Christians, they're never going to learn to discern yeah. anything. Well, not only are they not going to learn to discern, but especially adolescents and young adults, they're going to take their questions somewhere. Yes. Like the question that is simmering in their soul is going to somewhere. Yes. It's going to the internet. It's going to their peers. It's going to a college professor. It's going to somewhere. So, how do we put ourselves at the front of the line as the most winsome and truthful mm-hmm. uh, place where, you know, they, they might find, they might come to us for answers, be dissatisfied and look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if we've given them the most winsome, truthful answer, there's a greater likelihood they're going to find their way back around and go, yeah, you know, I tried that and my friend said something stupid and my college mm-hmm. professor said the opposite. So what's really going on here? Yeah if we give them a dissatisfactory or an unsatisfactory answer because it's, it's thoughtless, it's trite, it's pat, we refuse to answer their questions, we tell them that question is not allowed, well, then they're going to stop bringing their questions to us and still take them somewhere else. So yeah. we have to create an environment that welcomes all questions and responds to them with clear biblical 
gentleness, mercy, grace, but yeah. also the kind of clarity that says this is true and this is untrue. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're, we, we often confuse, you know, uh, like speaking the truth with love. We think of that as speaking less of the truth. That's the mistake we make. No, you speak just as much truth. You just do it in a manner that makes the person feel whole mm-hmm. and respected and honored yeah. and dignified, not diminished and stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that, that's what we need to see more, whether it's, um, in writing in teaching and speaking, but specifically in my personal belief, and I'm sure yours as well in, in how we minister in the confines of the church. And, you know, like I said, at the beginning of the show, you have a varied and valuable perspective of church ministry. Um, you know, you grew up as a PK and as we've already covered, uh, you know, your dad is a somewhat well-known pastor, of course. Um, I've referred to him as the evangelical Pope before, um, <laughs> but uh, he would hate, he would hate that. I've heard him talk about the papacy uh, in a, in a vitriolic way as well. But, uh, but, you know, you work now at Emmanuel Nashville, which is pastored by Ray Ortland. Um, who I, I was pastor. Ray Orland was the founding pastor okay. about just about a year ago. He, he handed off the leadership. So he retired as senior pastor, but yeah, for the first 11 years of the church, yeah. he was the senior pastor did probably one of the best pastoral transitions I've ever seen. So he's moved on into, okay. he's still part of the church, still very close to all yeah. of us, but uh, handed off to a guy named TJ Timms, who's our senior pastor now, who's, who was on staff previously. So it was yeah. just a, it's a wonderful handoff, but just, you know, for clarity's sake, but yeah, 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 the, yeah. but yeah, Ray is Ray's a uh, he's sort of a godfather figure sure. for a, a whole kind of generation, especially yes. of church planters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's he's the man and and one of the clearest Bible teachers I've ever heard. As far as oh, he's brilliant, yeah, te- learning how to exposit the text but not do it yeah. in a boring way and 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 all that. But what, so in the lead up to the conversation you and I are having now, of course, I follow you on Instagram. And there on your Instagram is a picture of you on your wedding day. So congratulations, by the way, you were very oh, recently you. married um, and uh, standing in between John Piper, your father and Ray Ortland, who I believe performed the ceremony, if I'm not. He incorrect. did. Yeah. And, and I'm just like, okay, wow. Yeah. Um, so, he's st- <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, insofar as being a guy who works at a church um, and having influences like that, what, what ways have uh, not just those two guys, but having influences like those guys prepared you for this season where you're ministering in a church context as opposed to your past career in Christian publishing? Yeah. Um, I discover new ways often, mm-hmm. you know, week to week, month to month. Because again, it's one of those things where the influences run deeper than my awareness. Yeah. And so there, there's a it's not a modeling myself after those guys in, mm-hmm. in any sort of imitative sense. I'm so different than my dad yeah. and from Ray in a lot of ways, what those men have in common, and they're very different than each other in a lot of ways too. But what those men have in common is a, an intensity of passion for the thing that God has called them to, mm-hmm. which as a recovering cynic is a little bit hard for me because intensity of passion feels very risky. Mm-hmm. That's sort of an, that's an all in mindset. Mm-hmm. That is a, I'm going to give 100% of myself to this thing. Consequences be damned. Yeah. And that's hard mm-hmm. um, for me. But I look at them and I go, well, Ray is 71. My dad is 74. They have faithfully served in ministry through 
some really difficult times, but also some amazingly, you know, fruitful, blessed times. And they just never gave up. Mm-hmm. So there's something about that that I need to, I need to follow in their footsteps. The other, the another aspect is humility. Mm-hmm. They do not think of themselves as special. They deflect praise. They, they receive it in terms of, yeah. you know, encouragement, but just a refusal to have an ego. Mm-hmm. Well, in the, in the day and age of, of likes and shares and, and you can count, you can count people's impression of you. Yes. Ego comes easily. Yeah. So what does it look like to, to imitate where they find their value, mm-hmm. where they find their confidence? Um, I watch how Ray pours into guys like me. You know, I would not be on staff at Emmanuel if it wasn't for Ray Orland. TJ Timms approached me first and sort of opened the door and said, would you ever think about this? And I said, no, <laughs> but thank you. Uh, and then Ray approached me and said, you need to think about this. And uh, that's not a thing one can ignore. Yeah. And so, you know, when Ray like locks you in his office and stares at you and says, you need to think about this, you start yeah. thinking about it immediately. But, but then he didn't just say that. He then, he then has sought out opportunities to build me up. And I look at that and I go, okay, well, I'm 37. Um, what does the next 30 years for me look like in finding the guys to do that for? Because I bet Ray wasn't real great at that when he was 37. But mm-hmm. how do I get to, to be that version of a man when I'm 71? Yeah. Uh, another aspect, like you said, I just, I just got married. Um, it's my second marriage. My first, uh, I got divorced in 2016. Um, the short version is that we went very different directions spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I look at Ray and he's been married 48 years. My wow. parent, my parents have been married 51, yeah. 50, 51, two, 51 or two years, something like that. And okay, well, and, and they, and they're not tired of their spouses. Yeah. So they're doing like they, right. yeah. Ray and Ray and Janie are like uncomfortably in love. Mm-hmm. But the kind of uncomfortable that you're like, I, w- I wish I was that confident to, to be that warm, affectionate mm. in public. My parents are not super expressive, but they are super, like their life is just glued together. There's, a, there's just a meshing of their life that just works. And, um, and I look at that and I go, okay, I don't know which version I want or works best for me, but I would love to have that, mm-hmm. that commitment, that consistency, because I, I, I don't know yet the effects, but I'm certain Mm-hmm. That has played a role in how they are as as men of God, as ministers. Yeah, uh, the the role that my mom and Janie have played in their respective mm-hmm. marriages. So those are those are things that come to mind. So it's not it's not trying to imitate their preaching or their yeah. leadership styles or or any of the the stuff that you can make seven points out of. Yeah, it's the the character, the commitment, the reliance on God, the staying low before the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then their, their commitment to being Christ-like husbands mm-hmm. is all, all those things are prof- probably more profoundly shaping than I realize. Yeah, I would, ima- I would imagine. So, and, and like you that said, that was a not- long answer because it, you just asked me to say nice things about some of my favorite people. So yeah, well, it, it's a, it was an e- easy setup softball, <laughs> <laughs> say nice things about Ray Ortland and John Piper go, you know, I mean, not, okay. not hard to do, yeah. um, but you know, so you said something that needs to be repeated is it's not about imitating 
them in how they express themselves and and they preach and, and whatnot. Yeah. It's it's imitating to a certain degree their character. And Paul said, imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, and so you said something about how they what you've seen in their life is this passionate giving of 100 yeah. percent um and you and i both are you know there's something about being in your 30s to where you sort of figure out you're like oh crap like i gotta i gotta kind of start doing that i gotta start giving 100 yeah. percent to something uh what does that look like for barnabas piper you know what is it that you're going forward and in the next 5 10 15 years you're giving 100 percent too passionately yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Cause like at 21 or 22, you feel you give a hundred percent, but yes. you're like a pinball. So you yes. just run a thousand miles per hour in yes. 11 different directions per year, <laughs> yes. you know, and you commit to nothing. Um, and then you get to your late twenties and early thirties and you're like the pinball that's stuck. You're like, uh, I don't know where to go and I can't go there and I don't know what's happening. Um, and so for me, it seems as if it seems very clear that in the last year, year and a half, um, God has very, has made this very clear. I have three things in my life right now that are things that I, there's no time frame on them. They're just, you mm-hmm. just do this mm-hmm. for life. One of them is being a parent. Yeah. Um, so what does it look like to give a hundred percent as a parent, which is, uh, yeah, I am figuring that out. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't know exactly, but I'm, I'm working on it. Um, uh, for me, a big lesson there ongoing is, uh, you know, being a hundred percent ready to repent to my kids, apologize for yeah. the things that I get wrong. Cause I'm not going to get it a hundred percent right. Mm-hmm. But if I can, if I am ready to make right the wrongs, mm-hmm. then, then I'm headed in the right direction. The second is marriage. I've been married yeah. for uh, almost two months now. So not mm-hmm. very long at all but Lord willing, this is the front end of many decades. And yeah. that works. That only works if, if I give a hundred percent. And frankly, that's a different sort of challenge because having been married previously, there's, there's a little bit of hesitation and fear. There's just, there's a bit of a, which, which is not fair to a current marriage because the two are not related in any specific way. Right. Um, but what does it look like to give a hundred percent not, not even to the concept of marriage, but to Lauren, like she's, yeah. she is the marriage, not, mm-hmm. not this, not this sort of uh, general concept of commitment or whatever. Mm-hmm. The third thing is the church. Um, I never would have predicted ending up being on staff at a church. I'm on an ordination track right now. So mm-hmm. I'll go from director to pastor sometime in the next few months. Right. And, you know, Lord willing, again, mm-hmm. um, had to pass an exam and things. So fingers <laughs> crossed. Yeah. Um, but it's the first, uh, it's the first position I've ever held that I look at and I go, I don't see any reason not to do this until, you know, it's till the, the Lord shoves yeah. me into something else. Right. Every other job I've had, I was like, this is two to five years. This is one mm-hmm. to three years. This is something like I just, I knew there was a shelf life on it. Cause there was just a clear sense that this is not, this is what God has provided, not what God has for me long-term. Mm-hmm. Whereas right now I look at it and I go, I think this is probably long-term wow. barrings, you know, a very obvious move from the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and then out of the church ministries, whatever other, you know, yeah. speaking, writing, whatever, that, that works best when it's rooted in the church. Yeah. I, I don't trust Christian speakers, authors, whatever, who are not locally church rooted. 
Yeah. Like, what are they? I don't even know mm-hmm. what that means. You're just, there, yeah. there, there's no like, there's no free, like free agent, independent Christian brilliance. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the church is, the church is God's way of doing this. And so like mm-hmm. that matters to me. Yeah. Am I writing stuff that the people of Emmanuel church and then the big C church will benefit from? Am I yeah. speaking in a manner that, that reflects who mm-hmm. we are as a church community and so forth. Um, so yeah, it's those three things that I look at and I go, what does a hundred percent look like in those? Mm-hmm. I don't have definitive answers. Yeah. Um, I think it probably is progress. I think there's probably yeah. pr- finding areas of life on an ongoing basis that I go, Oh, mm-hmm. that one I hadn't given over yet. So yeah. that needs to yeah. be put in line with a hundred percent. Yeah. And, and continuing to model ourselves after those guys who've come before us, who've made it to their seventies and their eighties still doing it. It's just a slow, faithful progress. It's, it's a, an easing of the ego and the ambition and just waking up every day and doing it. Um, and I, I'm with you. I mean, I hate if we're offending some independent free agent Christian speaker of which I I don't, I don't hate it. I think this should be a call to them to like, if you're not part of a church, you're not obeying Christ the way you're supposed to. I think for me, it's cause, cause I, I'm a pastor of a local church and then I do all things, all people quote unquote on the side. But to me, it's just icing on the cake. It's like, this is great. I get to go do these cool things, but I come home to my church, you know, and, yeah. and it's a, it's a beautiful uh, tension is a beautiful dialectic is, is, is having that home. And, you know, we're at an interesting time and this is how I'm going to uh, finish up because I, I want, I want to hear your thoughts on this and then, and then let you get back there to uh, live in life in Nashville is, you know, whether it's COVID, whether it's um, difficulties within race relations and political tensions and all things, the church is at a, if it's not transitional, it's, it's certainly peculiar for most American Christians right now. And as, as guys who are looking at, like you said, hopefully decades long calls to mm-hmm. church ministry, uh, what should we be looking at? What does the next 20 years look like for church ministry and how should Christians be uh, focusing on what do the next 20 years look like as we're trying to reach our communities and, and share the gospel and, and introduce people to Jesus? Man, that is a, it's a big, yeah, it is. Um, the thing that comes to mind most readily, and I, this is probably contextual because we are in such a contentious divided time. Mm -hmm. Granted, it has been a contentious divided time for my entire life. I mean, you you know, when the religious right forms in the early eighties and then Mm -hmm. there's, you know, the, there's always been something yeah. going on in the church that that has di- caused a division somewhere. Um, the things that come to mind are the commands in scripture for church leaders that talk about avoiding needless disputes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean avoiding every contentious issue. It says needless disputes. So yeah. if you're standing up for the rights of humanity, the rights of the unborn, the rights of minorities, yes. the rights of whoever, that's not a needless dispute. That's, biblical justice. Mm -hmm. It has to be under the banner of Christ's kingdom though. Mm -hmm. Um, TJ, our pastor preached a sermon series on Philemon recently. It was just three sermons, you know, just three on Philemon. It's not a very long book talking about essentially the new reality that God intends to create that Christ intends to create through his church. Like that is the kingdom of Christ. And then today I was reading Matthew this morning and just looking at Jesus's teaching and going, 
good night. He's trying to turn the world upside down. Mm-hmm. Everything that we, that we think, you know, that, that people sort of instinctively gravitate towards, he's like, nope, that's, you've heard that it was said this, I say this to you. And there's just a turning upside down. And so I think the, the willingness to commit to preaching a gospel that is properly contentious, not needlessly mm-hmm. contentious, mm-hmm. that makes a home for the broken people and the exhausted people and drives the legalistic pharisaical people up the wall, mm-hmm. the you know, clarity about biblical moral convictions, you know, whether that's marriage or gender or um, uh, racism or whatever, like you have to be clear on those things biblically, not politically. Yeah. They're not the same thing. So mm-hmm. when I look at the next 20 years, I think churches that can biblically define their convictions to resemble the kingdom of Christ as Christ presents it. So it's going to be obnoxiously countercultural and profoundly winsome at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's super idealistic. Yes. Like isn't true. that what we're isn't that what we're supposed yeah. to do? Right. Yeah. And, and that's another one of those things that I look at somebody like Ray and somebody like my dad. And I think that's what they did. Yeah. They did not, they, they never played party lines. They didn't play power politics. They did address social issues, but always from the perspective of this is the way God views this group of people. So how are we aligning with God's intent? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. I look at them like, yeah, that, I think, I think that's, that's what we yeah. need out of church leadership. Yes. Well, and, and let it be true, Barnabas. I mean, uh, yeah. let, let there be a generation of men and women, you know, young and old who buy into a vision like that. Cause ultimately that's just the biblical vision of, of what we're to be doing here. But, um, you know, I can see why you're a successful author. Everything you say sounds like it's, it's being written in a typewriter in my mind. Um, <laughs> and so, so to anybody listening who hasn't, who hasn't already decided to go and, and check out Barnabas's books, make sure you go do that. If you're in the Nashville area, I, I, I highly encourage you to go check out Emmanuel Nash because Barnabas is just one example of the men and women out there who are just doing their best to reach that community with the, the transformative message of the gospel. But, um, but yeah, Barnabas, thank you so much for, for your time today. Um, and, and just like I've said a couple of times, your perspective is one that I value. And hopefully there's quite a few people listening to this who, who have been introduced now to a perspective such as yours that, that is challenging, encouraging, and you know, brutally honest, which we need, we need a lot more of. So thank you so much, man. Absolutely. It's been, uh, it's been an honor to be on and I appreciate uh, the questions and the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, brother. We'll, we'll do it again sometime.